The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness of the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulations and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatria and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and on the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and white golden, sorry, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was, was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of God. Good morning. Uh, good to see you guys from south again as well, um, as always. Uh, we are finishing up our series that we've been in for the last seven weeks, uh, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And so we've looked at all those letters. Um, and I, I didn't want to just end uh, with a letter. I wanted us to stop and pause uh, before we move on and just kind of consider um, all that we've looked at in the last seven weeks. Um, and really, the main thing that I want us to take away from those seven letters 
Um, in each of those letters, there was different things that we looked at that we could take away corporately, that we could take away hopefully personally as well. Now we fit into this story as individuals, as part of the community of faith, the church, uh, within that. Um, so I, but I really want us to, to go away with one kind of thing in our mind um, today. Um, and so to, to get us to that point, I want us to, uh, we're going to look at really this first section of Revelation chapter 1. Um, and we're really going to focus our attention uh, on that text this morning. But um, I want to ask you a question first just to, to help us get in the right frame of, of mind. Um, so here's my question for us this morning. What is something that you're really confident in? Just think about that for a second. Not like the answer that you think I'm wanting to hear, like Jesus or the gospel or whatever. Like, we'll just take that as a given, right? But like, what's something you're really confident in? It might be something, you know, kind of within yourself. Um, You might have a talent or a skill. Um, I asked this question to a few people today or or over the week when someone answered their ability to make good coffee. And I was like, good, I'm glad I know you, and you should make me some coffee. So, um, uh, or it might be uh, your confidence in, in something outside of yourself and another person. Um, someone said they were really confident in their spouse's love for them, which is a beautiful uh, thing to be confident in. It might be something even bigger than uh, humanity itself. You might be confident that the, the sun is going to rise in the morning, even though we can't see it most of the time here. It, you can see it today, so... Uh, enjoy it, uh, or the season's changing, um, whatever it may be. But what is something that you're just confident in? You don't really waver in your, um, yeah, your confidence in that. Um, and then let me ask us this question. How confident are you in your faith? And I, want, I really want you to stop and just think about that. I'm going to give you 10 seconds here. Um, just to, to begin that thought, how confident are you in your faith? Just consider that for a moment. And I wonder in the beginning of your answer to that question in your mind, where your mind took you. Maybe, uh, I think for most of us, and probably even my knee-jerk reaction, if I'm honest, is I begin to think about me. I really begin to think about myself, right? How am I doing in my faith? What do I know? Am I really confident in what I know? Could I explain that to other people? Do I feel confident most days? Do I still struggle a lot with certain things? Like we tend to really think about us when we think about our faith. Um, And there's nothing wrong to that to some degree. But what I really hope to accomplish this morning is to bolster our confidence this morning, like Peter, um, when our faith often falters, when storms come, when we start to sink, and for the same reason like Peter, we start to look to ourselves. We start to look to our own circumstances, our trouble, our suffering, the storm, and we stop looking to Jesus, and we find our faith start to falter a bit. And as we've seen in this series on the seven churches, it was often the underlying issue with the churches that Jesus rebukes, right? Ephesus was this loveless church. They had really forgotten their first love. They'd forgotten the love of Jesus. Pergamum was this compromising church. They compromised their faith. They wanted to, to, to serve Jesus, but they also really wanted to indulge uh, the world that they lived in as well. Thyatira was this tolerant of sin church. They were faithful in a lot of things, but false teaching had crept in, and they just kind of tolerated it. 
Sardis was this dying church, a zombie-like church that thought they were alive but really were dead. They had stopped looking to and depending on Jesus. And then Laodicea, essentially what Jesus calls a worthless church. They weren't useful like hot water or cold water can be. They were completely useless. All of these had been distracted from who Jesus actually was. The churches that he commends, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he calls them the faithful church and the loyal church. Because they had reminded themselves, because they had remembered who the faithful and loyal one was, that Jesus was faithful to them, that Jesus was loyal to them, even though their circumstances in the immediate to those looking from the outside might not have looked that way. This is a major reason that the book of Revelation is given to us, right? We see this in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. There's a time of trouble. There's a time of tribulation that we will all endure until Jesus comes to set things right. When Jesus undoes the effect of our rebellion against him of sin on the world that we live in, Jesus is delaying that out of his grace and his mercy, giving us time to respond to that. And so John writes this letter, or it might be more accurate to say he records this letter because it is the revelation of Jesus. The first few words of this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is being revealed And it's important that we remember this is happening in the context of brutal Roman rule. Roman Caesars at the time were absolute moral disasters, right? Um, They they often were the picture of human depravity. Um, John is writing this letter kind of toward the end of the reign of, uh, of Domitian from 51 to 96 AD. And this is just one emperor, one Caesar. This is his, some of the highlights of his life. He married, uh, he starts off marrying the wife of another man. His brother was ill, and before he was even dead, left him for dead. He buried alive a woman um, for having a, a different lover, um, not his wife. And then he beat his lover, her lovers with rods to death. He seduced his married niece and then causes her death by making her have an abortion of his child. He demanded being addressed by Lord and God. And he killed those that joked about his baldness. Sensitive guy. Hey. <laughs> right? This, this, is, this is just one Caesar. This is the kind of, of people that are ruling over the empire at the time. John has this vision revealed toward the end of this reign. Christians are being persecuted, as we've seen throughout this series. John himself has been exiled to Patmos, this island. And here he is writing this letter this revelation of Jesus, and he says that blessed are those who hear and who actually do what's found in this letter. That sounds like Jesus, right? It should sound like Jesus because we just finished a whole series with Jesus talking that way. Blessed are those who, flourishing are those who will hear my words and do them. And so this revelation of Jesus is needed for the churches at this time. And it's needed for us. This isn't just just to these specific seven churches. 
We, God in his sovereignty has included this into the canon of scripture for all churches across all time and space. And it's to remind us of why we should feel blessed. Why we should praise God. Why we should have confidence in our faith, even in the midst of extremely difficult times. We think about that. Grab that door because my son is really noisy. Sorry. That's my kid. I don't know where he gets it. Um, And think about this. How good must have John's experience of Jesus and Christianity have been? To have lived during this time under Roman rule, being exiled onto this island. All All of his other mates, his other disciples of Jesus, being executed, martyred for their faith by this same government that is exiled him, how good of his experience, how much confidence did he have in Jesus for him to declare this a blessing whilst being exiled, while watching the saints suffer, and then to write this revelation to these churches at the risk of his own death. He's already been exiled. He's already being punished. To continue on with the message of Jesus, how good must his experience and confidence have been? May that be an inspiration to us. And it begs the question, is your experience of your faith like this? Is my experience like this? Do I have that kind of confidence? He must think that there is a life after this one in which those who belong to Jesus are rewarded and that that life would be superior to all the pleasures that this world offers presently. Do we believe that? Do you know that there is something bigger and better to live for than just the immediate tangible things that we can see and experience? Do you know that relief comes by by knowing God, being known by God, that relief comes through faith in Christ, through his his death and resurrection that makes us right with God? Do you know that this morning? Diognetus was a a man who lived during this time. This is the description that he writes of the Christians, of of the people that these letters are written to, those that are being faithful. Um, He writes this. He says, they love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. And so Christians, when punished daily, increase more and more. These Christians lived in a way that communicated a way, they lived in a way that communicated that said knowing God is better than freedom from persecution and suffering. Knowing God is better than avoiding martyrdom by denying him. Knowing God is better than money, it's better than fame, it's better than, than doing evil to avoid punishment by a corrupt government. When we show that our lives by our lives, that knowing God is this good, 
others want to know that God, right? This, this happens over and over again. Where the church is most often persecuted the most severely is where it grows the fastest. People want to know about our hope. They want to know about how do you have that kind of confidence in the face of persecution, in the face of great suffering, in the, in the face of loss, maybe even the loss of life, your own life. And so the revelation of Jesus should produce this radical change of perspective in us. It should radically change our perspective in the way that we view life. Our worldview should be different, markedly different from those who don't know Jesus. And that's what I want us to look at today. This is what I hope, I hope, I hope what we look at in the scripture today produces more faith in us. I hope it, 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 it bolsters our confidence not in you, but in Jesus himself. And so let's see why. Why is this a blessing? Why does John call the revelation of Jesus to us a blessing? Well, we'll look at it. First of all, we're going to see that this blessing comes from, first of all, God's prophetic revelation from Jesus. His prophetic revelation from Jesus. And again, this is a revelation. It's, it's been revealed to us. God is uncovered, he's disclosed who he is in Christ. This isn't invented by man, this isn't a doctrine that we've come up with, this isn't something that we've invented, it is the very word of God, a prophetic revelation from Christ. Notice what he, how he says this, is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must Take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We're actually blessed. Blessing comes from the revelation of who Jesus is, revealed to us through his scripture. And it's 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 called the very word of God. And we use that. We can kind of get used to these kind of terms as, as people of faith, can't we? We call the Bible. The Bible is just, oh, it's the scriptures. It's the word of God. It's just like another title that we give to this kind of book. But we need to actually bear the weight of that. It's actually God speaking to us. He's revealing it. And it's interesting the way that he frames this. Often um, people who... who take a more kind of liberal approach to the, to the scriptures, who maybe say, listen, the scriptures aren't perfect. They're not inerrant. What the Bible records, those events were, were perfect. Jesus is perfect. Um, but that's not how the Bible actually describes itself. It's to the one who reads aloud these words of prophecy. Blessed is them who hears him, who keeps what is written in it, because it's actually the very words of God. Jesus is actually described as the word of God as well, like the embodiment of the word of God, the logos. He's being revealed to us through his word. You don't know anything about Jesus. You and I, and I don't know anything about Jesus except what's revealed by God himself. And he reveals that to us primarily through his word. Yes, by his spirit as well, but it's a spirit testifying to his own word. And so we can have confidence in this book. 
because it gives us a glimpse behind the curtain. It lets us see with new eyes, with spiritual eyes, the true reality of the world that we live in. It's the difference, isn't it, between those people of faith. The Bible talks about having eyes of faith. It's like putting on glasses, not being able to see the real reality, seeing things a bit blurry, and then putting on these kind of corrective lenses of the Word of God and being able to actually see with clarity what's really happening, what's really going on. Second blessing comes from the public reading of God's Word, right? Blessed are those is the one who reads aloud. So you're blessed this morning. Good job. (laughs) But we're also blessed because we get to hear it as well. Um, It's why we read God's Word. It's why we we, we read it privately. Um, We're very lucky to live in the time that we have, that you actually can have God's Word, all these tools um, on your phone. Like You can carry that around at any time, that we get the Bible in print. Um, A privilege that the church didn't have at the time. They had to listen. They had to hear. Most people were probably illiterate during this time. But blessing comes from the public reading of God's word. It's why we, that's the only thing we kind of do up there is, is the reading of God's word that even sits above what I say here. Third, blessing comes from our responding in obedience. Blessed is the one who keeps what is written in it. The purpose isn't just, the purpose, especially of the book of Revelation, isn't to get us speculating on details of the end times. That's not the main purpose of this book. It's to inspire us to faithful obedience. Why? Because the time is near. The time that we have to respond, to be faithful and obedient, is running out. Jesus in his mercy is delaying his return when it will be too late to respond at that point. We respond now in faith. In verse 4, he says, grace and peace. And look how it's worded, grace and peace. From him who is and was and who is to come. We sung those words even this morning. That is God the Father. And from the seven spirits, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit who is before his throne and from Jesus Christ. You get grace and peace from the full, all three persons of the Godhead. <laughs> the full Trinitarian blessing of God and peace. I want us to focus where this book focuses on that third person. Usually, Jesus is mentioned as the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But here he's mentioned last because that's where the focus is going to be. It goes on to really describe who Jesus is. And it's this description of Jesus that we can have that, that, that is going to bolster our confidence this morning. So I want to look at kind of five things that's, that's described here in the text that I hope gives us more confidence in Jesus. First, we can have confidence because of Jesus' revelation. He is the faithful witness, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He is the revealer of the Father. He is the faithful witness to who God is. It is his words, his works, his sinless life that reveal the very character and nature of God. Do you want to know what God is like? We look to Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of all the character and nature of God. It is by his present ministry and concern for these churches that he's writing to, for us, as he's present and dwelling with us here this morning, that he reveals the interest and concern of the Father for his people. 
Psalm 89, 37 talks about the moon, the moon, that rock in the sky that glows at night. Well, it doesn't actually glow. We'll get to that. The moon is called a faithful witness in the sky in Psalm 89. And then these words are transferred to describe Jesus as well. And what does the moon do? Shows up. It's there. It's one of the things you can kind of be confident in. But it reflects. It, it reflects the light of the sun. Jesus is this faithful witness. He's, he's a witness to who God actually is. He's a witness to God's love and mercy and forgiveness because of what he has accomplished for us. By condescending to us, taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, the life that you and I should have lived but didn't, dying the death that you and I deserve to die. He's the faithful witness of who God is. Second thing we can have confidence is, is Jesus' resurrection. It says that he is the firstborn of the dead in verse 5. Firstborn of the dead. This is the way the Colossians 1 in verses 15 and 18 describe him as well. Jesus was the first to die, raised from the dead, and live forever. He's the first one to ever do that. But he's not going to be the last one to do it. <laughs> Praise God. He's the firstborn of the dead. Not the last. He's the firstborn of a new order. He's the pledge. He's the promise of our future resurrection for those of us that put our hope and faith in Jesus. That we too can follow Jesus because of our union with him through death to the other side. 1 Corinthians 6.14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Psalm 89, that same psalm I just referenced, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the king of kings. This is messianic language. It's Davidic language. It's not that he's just the first in order. It's that he's the first of importance. How does Jesus even describe himself in this chapter? Chapter 1 of Revelation in verse 18. He's the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The keys of death and hell itself belong to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection, because of his resurrection, we can have full confidence that no matter what happens in this life, even death, it's not the first death that we have to worry about. It's the second death. The first death that you and I experience in this life just takes us to the next one. But for those who haven't placed their faith and trust in Jesus, there's a second death. And that second death keeps us separated from God for eternity. And the third thing we can be confident in and we see in this text then is Jesus' rule. It says that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. Notice the language is present tense language. It's not he will be the ruler of kings on earth, but he is now, present tense. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. These are, this is uh, this description of Jesus giving, uh, well, let's just read it. It says, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. This is Jesus as he's getting ready to, to ascend after his resurrection to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw them, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And then there's these interesting three words, but some doubted. Isn't that phenomenal? There's, that gives me a little bit of hope. 
There are people that have literally saw the resurrected Jesus and still had some doubts. And Jesus came and he said to them, and this is the words of Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority. He's ruling now. And because of that, then he says, you then, my disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. (laughs) The one who is with us has all power, has all authority on heaven and on earth. He is the ruler of all kings. That, that should give you confidence. And it's confidence right now that I need because there's no confidence that I'm receiving from, from the government of the two nations I'm citizen of. Both of them are like, I'm like, oh man. The two places that I'm citizen of and can live, both those governments, in my opinion, are kind of a, a bit in disarray. What confidence would you place If that's where our confidence lies, we're in trouble. Read, we don't have time this morning, but but this afternoon or or sometime in the next day or two, read Revelation 19. Skip ahead to the end where it starts to, the very end of all of this is coming together. We see the very close of history, of human history that will happen. And read the description of Jesus there. There's no doubt who is the king of kings. The fourth thing we see in the text then that that gives us confidence is Jesus, his redemption. It says that Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He loves us. How do you know that? How do you know Jesus loves you? Because he's freed us from our sins by his blood. It's the cross that stands as the greatest evidence of God's love for you. That he would give his only son to reconcile you back to him. Us, the rebellion. Even while we were sinners, when we had no interest, he was making a way for us. It's by his brutal bloody death, the only way to set us free, that he did it, and he was motivated by his love for you. He did it for you, you personally, and he looses us from the chains of sin. We sung that this morning. He's freed us through his blood, through his, uh, the redemption. He's freed us from our sins. He's freed us from sin's penalty, right? The penalty that we deserve because of our sins of death. So we call that in theological terms, our justification that we are made right before God. The penalty has been paid. He is freeing us from our sins, from sin's power. Now we call that our sanctification, that the the power of sin should be the, the, should be loosening its grip on us as we become more and more like Jesus. And he will free us from sin's presence. 
for this is our glorification, that one day sin will be no more. That struggle that we have, that sinful nature that we have, not just temptation from the outside, but that temptation that comes from within will be removed. I can't wait to be that person. We can have confidence because of the cross, because of the redemptive work of Jesus, that he has paid the penalty, that he was the substitute in our place, and his atoning death reconciles us to God. That stands at the heart of what we believe to be true. It's not the only motif of the cross. Last week we looked at Jesus as the victor, but this penal substitutionary atonement I know those are kind of big words, but that really is the foundation of all the other things that Jesus has accomplished. If we lose that, you lose all the other things. We have confidence because of his redemption. Fifthly, then, his reign. Goes on then. He made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He made us a kingdom. Not he made a kingdom for us. But he has made us into a kingdom. The Apostle Peter in his letter refers to us as a royal priesthood. A kingdom made up of redeemed sinners who now worship and serve the Lord as the priest did. And part of a priest's job was, was to mediate the good news. We are to stand as witnesses as well. So we have all of these, these things that we'd be confident in. Jesus' revelation, his resurrection, his rule, his redemption, his reign. And he is the one who accomplishes all of this. This is why you can have confidence in your faith. Those things that we've all just described come from Jesus, not from you. He is the object of our faith. So many people who seem to lose their faith or fall away from faith, the reasons that they give are because of, of human reasons, because of their experience in church. And there are bad experiences in church. People have been wounded by other people. The church is really just, uh, it's us, a collection of sinners. <laughs> You're going to get hurt and wounded by people in the church. We're told to bear with one another. We're told to forgive one another. That assumes that you're going to have to have things to forgive people of. There's going to have to be things that you bear with. It's part of our sanctification process. It's how we become more like Jesus. And so, but people being wounded by the church or other Christians or, or whatever it is in the name of Jesus often causes people to, to walk away and lose their faith. But if we'll look to Jesus, this is Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's, that's, that's our calling, forsaking the world, running this race. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that successfully? Verse 2, Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder the author, the fountainhead, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. How do you not grow weary and faint-hearted in your faith? How do you not lose confidence in your faith? We look to Jesus. He's the perfecter of our faith. Not just to Jesus in general, but to what he has accomplished. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see this all revealed to us in this book of Revelation. We consider him and what he has endured, that we too might endure in and through him. We look to Jesus for our confidence so that we wouldn't grow weary and faint-hearted. This is really important, so I just want to pause because I think oftentimes this idea, well, what does it mean to look to Jesus, um, can be a little bit um, nebulous in that. So I want us to look to an example that Jesus actually gave us. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 8, 18. We're going to look at, at this text. This is a parable that Jesus gave. And the parable that he gave is in question to how can I be made right before God? And for us then that are Christians, how can I know that I've been made right before God? How can I have confidence in my faith? So let's read this text. This is a parable. Verse 9 of Luke 18. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And that's important. How are you made right, righteous? How are you made right before God? He's telling this parable to those who were trusting in themselves to be made right before God and treated others with contempt. Those often go hand in hand. The self-righteous treating others with contempt. Verse 10, this is the story that Jesus tells them. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, this is the elite of the uh, Jewish religious leaders. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, really an enemy of the Jewish people, who would have been a Jew, but taxing his own people for an opposing uh, opposition force, that guy, standing far off, wouldn't even, look, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what this is gonna, Jesus is going to unpack here, what it means to actually look to Jesus for the confidence of our faith. Right? Now, this is incredible. This guy gets a bad rap, this Pharisee. But I'm convinced that if he were here, we'd be tempted to make him an elder in our church. Notice how he presents his righteousness. First, it's a moral righteousness, right? He's a moral man. He's not, he's not an extortioner. He's not a cheater. He's not unjust. He's a just person. He's faithful to his wife. He's financially honest in his dealings. He's a morally upright man. And 
His morality is religious. It's not some kind of secular moralism. It's a religious. He's actually attending church. He's in the temple. He fasts twice a week. This guy tithes all that he gets. This is a pretty faithful guy. Moral, just, attends church, tithes of everything, fasts. He practices his religion. He sounds like a good man. And this is the kind of person that Jesus is talking to. And the problem isn't whether he's moral or not. The problem, Jesus says, is that he is trusting in even what he thinks is his God-given morality to make him right before God. When it comes, when it, when it comes to being declared right before God, he's trusting in the wrong things. His confidence is in the wrong thing. Now this is, we might go, yeah, that's obvious on the surface. But it's important to actually stop here and think. He's not presented as a legalist. He's not presented as someone who tries to earn his salvation. He acknowledges that it's from God. He's thanking God that God has made him not like this other person. But it is still his righteousness that he's looking to for his justification. Jesus wants us to see here that no matter how righteous you are or how moral you are or how religious you are, that's not the basis of our confidence of being made right before God. That's not how we're accepted and declared righteousness before God. Or the, the way that we could posit the question is, what, it, what are you trusting in? What is your confidence in? And the issue is, what are you looking to? Are, are we looking away from ourselves to Christ? When you see yourself, as we all will one day, standing before a holy judge, and you know that to escape that condemnation, you must be found righteous in an all-knowing, infinitely just court, what evidence are you going to present? What will your confidence be in? And Jesus is pleading with us this morning that we put our confidence, our trust in our justification, not in looking at what we have done, but looking at what God has done in us, for us, that we look and trust in Christ alone. This is what the tax collector did. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's contrite in heart. He's not looking to any, he had nothing of his own to present. The other guy has all this evidence that he's presenting. I fast, I tithe, I go to church, I'm just, I'm faithful to my wife, I'm a moral person. He has evidence that he's presenting, and it's that evidence that he's trusting in, even though he says, even though he acknowledges it's from God, it's still that that he's trusting in. He's still trusting in himself, his works. The other guy doesn't have anything to present but God's mercy. And Jesus says it's that guy, not the other one, who goes away justified before God. But often, in our faith, we start to falter because we don't feel like we're this guy. And it's important for us to remember that Jesus is telling this story before his death and resurrection. So we have 
an even clearer essence of what justification means. On this side of the cross, we have even more clarity. 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's in Christ. Paul will say it explicitly in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, and what gain he had was he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so he says, whatever gain I had, whatever evidence I could have presented like this Pharisee, I count it all loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word really used there is excrement, as dung, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, faith in his mercy, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace alone, to the glory of God alone that we have confidence in. Our confidence is in who Christ is and what he has done for us. It's he who writes to the churches. It's why in each of those letters, he opens that introduction with a description of himself from the rest of chapter one. From nine through where we read, there's this other description of Jesus, right? Son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash on his chest. His hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, this purity. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. They were pure, refined in a fire. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) That's how overwhelmed this vision of Jesus was. And yet Jesus' response, he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore these things. Our faith is in who Jesus is. Don't mistake your sanctification For your justification. That's what the Pharisee did. Look at the works that God is producing in me. That's what that's the confidence that I'm gonna have. But what happens, what happens when when those things fail? When we place our confidence, even as Christians, not in Jesus Himself, not looking to Jesus, but looking at even the benefits of Jesus. Or ourselves, even though we give credit for Jesus producing these things in us, what happens if we have a season where we struggle, where we give in to sin, where we stop listening to the truth of God's word, when we start to to listen to our culture, when that stuff creeps in, when though even though we see the resurrected Jesus, we doubt when we forget that he has all authority, when we forget the end, when we don't look to Jesus, but we look to ourselves, when we fail ourselves, 
often our faith fails with us. We have these crises of faith. First Peter 1, Peter writes this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. How can we, grieving in trials, grieving and, and maybe even our doubt and uncertainty, because that's often when we start to doubt the goodness of God, his love for us in our, in our times of suffering. How does Peter say you should rejoice even while you're grieving? <laughs> this is why. Verse 7, 1 Peter 1. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We can rejoice even if we're suffering. We can rejoice when our faith is being tested Because that's how you know it's genuine. Like gold refined by the fire, with its impurities in it, they melt it down. All the impurities rise to the surface. They skim that off so all you have is pure, undefiled gold. He says that's what your faith is like. But you have to go through that testing to know that it's real, that it's genuine. Oftentimes we think of this 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 text and test so that others might see the genuineness of our faith. And that's true. But I often think it's so that you know your faith is real. That you know your own faith is genuine. That your confidence wouldn't be in yourself even when you fail. Even when you fail Jesus. That our confidence is in him because he never fails us. Turn to Hebrews 10. We're going to end with this text. I've told our, our staff, my goal for kind of the autumn is to, is to really try to hit 40 minutes on my sermons. I knew that wasn't going to happen today, but we are almost done. I said September. It's not September yet. We're almost done. But look at Hebrews 10. This text has been rolling around in my head all summer. Um, Really since June when I was in Turkey, um, I spent some time in this text. I ended up teaching it some there and in D.C., but this really will encapsulate a lot of where, where, uh, how we'll conclude today. We'll start in verse 19. Therefore, now what, he's, what that therefore is referring to is him really unpacking Jesus being our ultimate sacrifice, essentially the gospel. He's unpacked that for the first part of this, and then because of that, he says, Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, since we have, and there's our word, confidence to enter the holy places, how? Because of your good works? Because you're killing it for Jesus? No. By the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he has opened up for us, he has opened up for us through the curtain. That is a reference to the curtain in the, in the temple. You, only the high priest could go through that curtain once a year. 
And when Jesus was crucified on the cross and he says it's finished, that veil was literally torn in two. Now we all have access with confidence into the holy place because of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And since then, verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, in full confidence of faith. Why? He hasn't mentioned us and and the strength of our faith at all. All he's talked about so far is what Jesus has done. That's why we can draw near in full assurance. It's not because you feel like your faith is amazing today. You might feel like the church in Ephesians today. My love for Jesus isn't as strong as it was. That's why he wrote them the letter. Calling them to come back, return to their first love. We may be compromising like the other church, but Jesus, because of his love for us, writes these letters to us, calling us back to who he is in full assurance of faith. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to encourage each other with this good news. We are encouraged to remind each other of who Jesus is, of his faithfulness to us. It's why we meet here every week. It's why we gather together in, in missional communities throughout the week. It's why we gather in smaller groups, a core group. This is why we do this. Go to verse 32. But recall the former days. So he's speaking to believers. After you enlightened, enlightened by who Jesus was, after you'd received the good news, when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, this is, he's going to describe exactly what these churches in Revelation were going through. Some of them. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, What is that? What's the abiding possession? It's Jesus himself, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. What is their confidence based on? Again, it's not you just bear up and endure. You can do it. Look to the strength within. There's no mention of any of that in any of this. Our confidence is always in the context of Jesus, of what he has done for us, of Jesus being the better possession and abiding one, that we are abiding in Jesus, that that is the reality of our experience. Often when we stop abiding with Jesus is when our faith starts to falter. That's why We're encouraged to remain in his love. Do not throw away your confidence. 
which has a great reward, this reward that we keep seeing over and over and over again, if you'll overcome, to the one who overcomes, to the one who hears, you have a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come. Jesus will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have faith. Not like the Pharisee, not faith in us, not faith in all the things that I do for God, not faith in my church attendance, not faith in my tithe, not faith in my fasting, not faith in my integrity, my faithfulness, my sexual purity, but faith in the mercy of God. And he'll change me. He, does God produce those things in, in us? Absolutely. But that's not what our confidence is in. Our confidence is in Jesus himself, in his character, in his nature, what he's accomplished in his death, resurrection, and ascension, our union with him that we are now presently seated in the heavenlies. That's the reality that you and I live in. That's the reality in which we base our, faith and, uh, our confidence of our faith in. And this is why Jesus writes to these churches. It's why he's written to us. My hope this morning is at the end of this series, and really with it coming off the back of Sermon on the Mount, where we've just soaked ourselves in the words and teachings of Jesus, and for the purposes of enduring and lasting and overcoming, that we'll remember these things, that the roots of our faith would go deeper down into Jesus and his word. We'll have confidence, even if culture mocks you for that even if we have to pay some kind of penalty and price for that, that we would see that all glorious, that our soul wouldn't shrink back, that we would hold fast the confession of our faith without, favoring, without wavering, that we would stir one another up in that confidence as well because we know who Jesus is and that he will return, that this life is an all, This life is really just a testing ground, a proving ground. Will we overcome that to reign and rule with Jesus forever? Or will we reject all that as just silliness, put our hope and faith in ourselves and do the best we can until we get buried in a box someday? One of those sounds like good news. Even though we don't experience, even though we have to experience suffering and trials, we have joy in that because it's the tested genuineness of our faith that will be revealed. Very perseverance, preser preservation of our souls. And this morning, if you're wanting to respond to that, you're like, listen, I'm not a Christian and you feel this urge to respond to that, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. 
Respond today. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Not even guaranteed the rest of this day. Respond today. We're going to um, stand in a moment. We're going to celebrate the means by which we receive this grace through the symbols of, of, of bread and wine, of, of God's son's body broken and shed, his blood shed for us. Um, if you're not a Christian, um, this meal isn't for you. It's for those that have placed their full confidence and trust in Jesus. If you've done that today, you're welcome to the table. Um, if you're not a Christian, receive Jesus today. I'll be up here. Andrew will be here. We'd love to talk to you about that. And then join us at the table. Let's pray. Father, we just admit we are forgetful creatures. We just forget all the truths that you've revealed to us today through your word, through Jesus. Um, Our affections get drawn away by lesser things. Sometimes those are sinful. Sometimes they're just disordered priorities. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy that calls us back because of what we read in the text, because you love us. Father, I just pray that we would, that we would know and experience that love um, to a much deeper place, that that love, uh, the way that you've proved that to us over and over again, specifically at the cross, Father, would, would stir our affections deeper for Jesus, would cause us to place our confidence fully and squarely on him, that we wouldn't confuse our sanctification and our justification. Father, I just pray even for those that today might even be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they would have faith, that you would grant that to them by their spirit, that they would respond to you. So, Father, I pray um, that as we come to the table, that you again would just deepen our confidence in you because of your body broken for us, because of your blood shed for us, because of the blood of Jesus, this new and living way that you've opened for us, that we can respond in full assurance, even this morning. By your grace, we pray. Amen.